Welcome to War Stories from the Womb. I'm your host, Paulette Kamenica. I'm an economist, a writer, and the mother of two girls. En route to creating this family, I tripped over every possible obstacle. No part of this process was easy for us. That makes sense to me in some ways because getting pregnant, being pregnant, and giving birth can be challenging in a whole host of different ways. But for some people, this massive transformation is fairly straightforward. I totally enjoy talking to people who had a relatively smooth experience because it proves that the ideas many of us come to pregnancy with are not mythic. They do, in fact, live in the world. And sometimes these lucky souls who tread this untroubled path are intent on sharing their superpower through surrogacy. Today's guest had an interest in fertility as a young adult, and this interest led her into nursing and midwifery. After the birth of her own child, she gave one of the greatest gifts anyone can give. She helped a couple who for various reasons couldn't carry their own pregnancy by becoming their surrogate. It's a beautiful and totally inspiring story. One thing I should note, this midwife shares a lot of insights about pregnancy and birth. And while you'll likely learn something listening to her like I did, I just wanna point out that she's not giving out medical advice, but speaking both generally and specifically about her own experience. Let's get to the interview. Hi, thanks so much for coming on the show. So excited to have a midwife on the show to share her experience. It's very cool to hear from the people who know too much. So thanks for coming. <laughs> thanks for having me. Introduce yourself and tell us where you're from. Yes. My name is Ann Richards. I am a midwife in uh, the Bay Area, California. Started my career in Oregon and have been at my current practice, which is a hospital practice for just over five years. We're going to hear your birth story. And then you have a super interesting story because you're also a surrogate. Correct. Um, but but before we get there, I just want to talk a little bit about the midwife career. Are you a midwife before you have your first baby? Yes, yes. I had been a midwife for five years before I had my son of, of being practicing as a midwife. So I'm guessing in five years, you saw a lot of stuff. Oh, yes. <laughs> Probably too much that. Yeah, definitely. So how did you walk into birth? Did you think, oh, this will be super easy? Or what was your feeling about it? So I started at a birth center up in Oregon, you know, where it was just the midwife and the patient until the very end and a nurse would come in. I think knowing what I know now, and I love out of hospital births, don't get me wrong. I don't know if I could go back to a birth center because I was just sort of blissfully naive coming out of, out, out of um, midwifery school and hadn't seen enough births to really see the full spectrum of what can happen. By the time I had my son, I'd been in a hospital-based practice and a much busier practice for, for two full years. What I tell my patients is expect the unexpected, was willing and ready to just meet that birth, that labor and birth where it was. So let's start from the beginning. Then. Yes. You, Sorry. So you walk into pregnancy kind of with open eyes. Yes. Yes. And kind of and low expectations. Okay, good. And then do you get pregnant easily? Very. We were very lucky. Yes. I, just like I tell my patients, like who are under the age of 35, which I was at the time, be prepared to get pregnant on the first try and be prepared to potentially, you know, it take it takes a year before, you know, you're even eligible in most practices to, to see a fertility specialist. And we got pregnant on the second try. So I was on the one end of the spectrum, like, oh crap, this happened. <laughs> like I'm thankful, yeah, yeah. I'm so thankful, but okay. I was expecting a little bit longer. Yeah. It, it takes a minute to sink in. Right. So mm-hmm, um, definitely. I, I think we all imagine if we're not educated, like you are, that it's the minute you try, you'll get pregnant. Cause that's kind of the line you're fed in high school. Yes. Um, and you just kind of travel with that, even though it's not necessarily realistic. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And then how was the first trimester? 
you know, I'm so lucky with pregnancy and I almost feel guilty saying that now to an audience. But again, though, I had low expectations. I knew I could be really nauseous. I could be really tired. I think the life of a midwife affords you a different uh, perspective on fatigue, you know, working nights, days, weekends, you know, my sleep schedule is already erratic. So I was pleasantly surprised. But I, again, I think that was my, my expectation going into it was like, oh, this is going to be really, really hard. And it wasn't easy, but it was less hard than I anticipated. Oh, good. It was really lucky. If only we could transport that set of expectations to everyone, I think it would be a, a much nicer ride. That's what I tell everyone, all of my patients, it's the, you know, the best preparation for parenthood, like set your expectations low going into pregnancy and into parenthood. And maybe you'll be very pleasantly surprised because, you know, I, that's really what I think uh, has served me so well as both a pregnant mom, a pregnant surrogate and as, and in motherhood is just keep those expectations low. (laughs) I'm with you. I'm with you. And the second trimester is fine. You're, you're seeing a midwife for your care. Is that how you're doing? Yes. I just saw my colleagues. So I knew I was going to give birth where I practice uh, because I adore where I work and, and feel very comfortable and confident in the care. Yeah. I would just be on labor and delivery and pop over for a prenatal visit. And, you know, the, the beauty of being uh, a midwife is, you know, you kind of know what to expect in terms of prenatal care. And I could really do the bare minimum, but still be safely monitored. And same thing. I just knew that I was lucky. It was a healthy pregnancy and, you know, I didn't need too much and to, to monitor it safely. That sounds awesome. So it sounds like a smooth ride into birth. Very, 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 very. I'm, I, again, I feel guilty saying this out loud and I feel guilty with patients who are struggling with pregnancy because I, I'm not one of those people. I know, but you're the, you're the ideal. It's fine to be the ideal, right? This is I know. For. Fair enough. And that's right. I, when, when people come in and kind of give me, give me this guilty, you know, grin at their prenatal visits and say, I feel really good. I'm like, that's great. Like yeah. own it. That's okay. It doesn't mean something horrible is coming. <laughs> you yeah. know, you might, you might just be someone who is really lucky and, or also works hard at it. I will say I, do believe that staying very active in pregnancy serves you well for a, for a healthy pregnancy and a more comfortable pregnancy. And so I was very, very active. And I think that that really helped get me through it uh, more comfortably. So let's be specific about this. What kind of exercise did you do and what were you comfortable with and how did it change? When I was in midwifery school, they knew research was coming out saying, you know, we've probably been putting far too many physical restrictions on pregnant women as it comes to exercise. And In this country, we see way more gestational weight gain than is really recommended. And that has, you know, negative outcomes like higher risk of gestational diabetes and hypertension and bigger babies. And so knowing that, that we've been putting too many restrictions, the new norm kind of is if you safely did it pre-pregnancy, you can continue it in pregnancy, you know, with some modifications, listen to your body. And so that's what I went with. So I was doing you know, high intensity interval training. Like I was doing like orange theory and my water broke at orange theory. Oh my my God. Like I, yeah, I felt great. I mean, some definitely pubic bone discomfort towards the end and pelvic discomfort. And, you know, I would have friends say they didn't feel sorry for me because I was making it worse by doing these, these workouts, but I felt really good. So I kept doing it and, you know, I would slow down, but I ran the whole way through I felt really, really good. I attribute that to not really changing that routine all that much. 
that's super interesting to me because I went into it a runner and I ran until like the third trimester and then it just felt uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what I tell people that's, I was expecting that. And I didn't, I think I found out later on that he was so low in my pelvis that there was probably nowhere else for him to go. So I'd been carrying him so low that I didn't feel much different in the third trimester. But that's what I tell people is just, you know, one day running might feel great and the next it might not for the rest of your pregnancy, or maybe it's just that day, but really just listen to your body. We don't tell women anymore that you need to wear a heart rate monitor, or that you need to be able to talk while you're exercising. The, the one thing that we really know now is you don't want women overheating. So I do tell people if hot yoga was your jam, it's not going to be anymore. But really, I tell people just you know, do what you've been doing. Don't pick up high intensity interval training in pregnancy if you've never yeah. done it before. You know, but if you do CrossFit pre-pregnancy with with few modifications, you can safely do it in pregnancy if you're really just paying attention to how you feel. That is super interesting. And I feel like that story is changing, right? Or has changed. Yes. In the oh, past, hugely, so. hugely. And not that's again probably in the last within the last 10 years, there's been huge changes in what we can safely advise women regarding pregnancy and cool. exercise. Wait, so I want to hear about the water breaking. I was going to take us to the birth. Like, how do you know today's the day? This sounds like a dramatic how you found out. (laughs) Well, so my son was, he was head down. And then we were doing this promoting vaginal birth training within the organization for which I work and, and nurses and doctors and midwives were coming from all these different hospitals within the network uh, to do, you know, this, this training on promoting vaginal birth. And one of the trainings was focused on teaching nurses how to really feel a baby in the abdomen and how to safely monitor with limited intervention um, so that we could promote mobility and labor. And so I, at 30 or 31 weeks, was the belly model. So nurses could really put their hands on my belly and try to feel my son's position. And at the beginning of the day, the midwife who first assessed me said, oh, he's head down. We didn't know he was a he, but oh, the baby's head down. Great. And by the end of the day, I think so many people had been poking and prodding because it was hard to feel his position at 30 weeks. He wasn't all that big yet. By the end of the day, I remember the midwife put her hands on my belly and her eyes got wide. And I looked at her and I said, he's breech, isn't he? Or the baby is breech. And she said, yeah. And I thought, well, not a big deal. We know 30% of babies are breech at 30 weeks. So we don't really worry about it. So I was doing, you know, spinning babies exercises every day to try to get him to turn and he never did. <laughs> so we did everything. I did all the things. I went to acupuncture. I did moxibustion. I did chiropractic care, all the things I tell my patients. Wait, what's, what's moxibustion? Moxibustion is through an acupuncturist and it's, I can't even explain it very well, but it's literally, you light this thing, you put this thing between the mom's big toe and her second toe and you light it and it's supposed to help turn babies. Although I could barely pronounce it moments ago, I looked it up and moxibustion is a technique used in traditional Chinese medicine that uses heat generated from a burning herbal preparation to stimulate acupuncture points. It's supposed to regulate meridian points and visceral organs, and it does this by increasing qi circulation and reducing qi stagnation, qi being the energy that circulates through the body at all times. It looks like this is a procedure that's been around for 2,500 years and has been used to try to cure all kinds of things, one of which is breach presentation. I found an article in PubMed from 2010 that looked at systematic reviews of moxibustion and it gave a generally favorable nod to the ability of moxibustion to affect breach presentation. Check out the show notes for details. And then we even tried to turn him in the hospital via um, a procedure called an external cephalic version, literally, you know, putting an IV in, 
giving a medication to relax the uterus and a, a physician tries to turn him manually and he wasn't having it. It's, it was horrible. It's the worst of all anything through my labor and birth. It's, it's the most discomfort I've ever felt because it's so sudden. There's no build like in labor. Yeah. It's just all of a sudden it's this massive, massive, massive discomfort. I really train to, to be sort of mentally disconnected and, and be ready for that. And I, I think I did fairly well with the relaxation, but he wasn't having it. It's a lot of, you know, pressure on the placenta and on their cord. And so we watched their heart rates very closely during those procedures and he did not like it. And so we had to abandon ship. We almost met him that day via emergency cesarean um, because it was, he was, yeah, it was that, it was that intense. And there is a different, you know, level of anxiety. I think when you're caring for a colleague and a birth colleague, and I'll never forget the two physicians were there and one was trying to turn him and the other was monitoring his heart rate. And she is a New York provider, former New York provider, calm, cool, and collected. Nothing frazzles her. And I've never seen her that frazzled because she was just watching his heart rate and hollering out that, that his heart rate had gone very low and wasn't coming back up. So I thought we were going to meet him that day. Thankfully we didn't, but we decided then to schedule cesarean at 39 weeks, which is, which is the, the procedure in our hospital. And most hospitals, when you have a known breech baby is you're, you're trying to find that sweet spot of scheduling a C-section when they're well beyond 37 weeks and nice and fully cooked, but prior to labor, that's the goal. Why can't we deliver a, a breech baby vaginally? Mm. They get stuck or what? What? Yeah. So, you know, some places you can, our practice doesn't do it. The risk is that the butt is usually smaller than the head. So if the butt comes out of the butt can potentially come out of a cervix, that's not fully dilated, say seven or eight centimeters, depending on the size of that baby's booty. And then the risk is what we call head entrapment is that the head the cervix is not dilated enough to let the head come through and um, the head literally gets stuck in the lower part of the uterus. It's a true emergency. It's something that if I'd had a baby before, I would have been willing to maybe find a provider somewhere that does vaginal breech births because there are providers who do them. But usually women have to have had a baby before and there's lots of criteria. Like the baby has to be in a specific type of breech position, not just butt down, but in a a position where like the legs are, are up and crossed, you know, they can't have one leg hanging down. They've got to be in a very specific position. So vaginal breech births do happen, but knowing the risk of it, especially as a first time laboring mom, I just, I was not comfortable with it. And we don't do them at my hospital. And I knew I wanted to deliver at my practice. If the baby isn't yet breathing oxygen, what is Mm -hmm. the, what's the problem with the head being stuck for a minute while the cervix is still opening? Uh, good question. The risk is that it's sort of like if if anyone uh, has ever come on and talked about a shoulder dystocia, you know, the, the head coming out, but the, the shoulders getting stuck. Same thing with the vaginal breech birth is that then the cord is getting very, we know the cord gets more compressed as the baby comes down the birth canal. And so you've got half of the baby out. And so yes, the baby is still getting oxygen through the umbilical cord, but it's usually very limited okay. and the baby can only handle that for a certain amount of time. Okay. Okay, Yeah. yeah. I'm not sure I would be up for that sport either. Good Lord. Yeah, it was, I've never seen a head entrapment. I hope I never do knock on wood wherever I, you know, where I'm sitting. It was just something where I think one of the quotes I use with my patients a lot is like, I um, respect birth, but I don't trust it. I know that might sound really negative, but I just was thinking there's a reason that the American college of obstetricians and gynecologists recommends 
cesarean for breech babies. I trust the research. I trust the evidence. And I knew, you know, this was just the way my kiddo was supposed to enter the world. And that was okay. Yeah. I tried everything and he wanted it this way. (laughs) Um, So we're headed to a C-section, but I don't usually associate C-section with water breaking. So how does that happen? So again, we scheduled the the C-section in my case was scheduled right around 39 weeks. And this, this shows what a bad patient's medical providers can be at my very first appointment when you're sort of trying to estimate what the due date is. Oftentimes we go with the due date by the woman's last period, menstrual period. But if that very first ultrasound in early pregnancy gives a different due date, if the, the due date difference is greater than a certain number of days, we're supposed to switch it to the, to the ultrasound because these all fetuses, regardless of um, genetics, tend to measure the exact same from head to booty, what we call a crown rump length measurement. So they're all the same size at 20 weeks. Uh, no, uh, at like six weeks, seven weeks okay. at 20 weeks, then genetics comes into play and babies have hugely d- vastly different measurements, okay. but in very, very early pregnancy, that's why we, a lot of practices do do a very early ultrasound. It's like, let's make sure this fetus is measuring quote unquote, what we expect, you know, especially based if the woman has a very accurate less menstrual period so that we can kind of just get the, the most accurate due date possible. Okay. So the first appointment I lied about my period because the, the, he was measuring not as far along based as far along as I should have been on my period. Now it was still concordance. We should have stuck with my period due date, but the due date that I was, that I could have, if I went with my ultrasound was further and I didn't want to be induced. So at six weeks, I was already considering, I don't want to be induced, which is hilarious now in hindsight, the way everything went. So my, my due date was like six days later than it really should have been on paper. Cause I okay. lied and said, Oh, my periods aren't regular. Don't go with that due date. My periods were beautifully regular. So I'm the worst patient. So my C-section was scheduled at 39 weeks, but in reality, I was almost 40 weeks. Yeah. So i went to orange theory. And at the very end of the workout, I did this big squat and my water broke and I knew it. It wasn't like the movies. It wasn't the big water balloon popping, but I, I felt it. And I was like, Oh gosh. (laughs) Okay. And again, it's, it was so humbling and such a good lesson for me because I tell my patients, like, you just got to meet your labor and birth where it is. And in my mind, all I'd had to really forfeit was this vaginal birth. And I, you know, now it was okay. I'm going to have a baby on this day. And then lo and behold, right. Things change again. So I dragged my feet, did not want to go in because I thought, no, 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 I'm not ready. I'm not ready today. Today's not the day. And if any of our patients call and are breached and their water's broken, we tell them to come in right away <laughs> because again, sort of the risk with the head getting stuck in a cervix that isn't fully dilated or a bottom sitting in the pelvis, there's more room in the pelvis for a bottom. And so what can happen is the umbilical cord very rarely, but can, there's so much space that if the water breaks, the umbilical cord can slip out of the cervix in front of the body in front of the butt and it's called an umbilical cord prolapse. And it's again, a true emergency because that, that baby's oxygen supply is getting significantly squeezed. Well, all of that knowledge went out of my head in that moment as a a soon to be mom. And I just thought, no, 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 I'm not ready. I'm not ready. So I went home and I showered. I called my, my kiddo's father and he was at work. And I said, this happened. Don't come home yet. I mean, all of the things that I would be mortified if one of my patients did, but I knew it was happening. And very quickly I started to have pretty uncomfortable cramping and still didn't go in. (laughs) So, So the worst patient. And, and you know, the cramping is, is contractions. 
Oh yeah. I knew exactly what it was. I knew exactly what it was. And I, I just couldn't wrap my mind around it. I could not wrap my mind around like today's the day. So I have so much more empathy for patients who have like true preterm births, you know, and thinking I have another month, I have another two months. I I can't imagine what that must be like because I was full term. I was 40 weeks about, and still it felt like, no, 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 this can't happen. (laughs) It was, yeah, it was, it was, I was ridiculous. And then finally I get, my husband got off the phone at work and told his coworkers what was going on. And he thought, well, she's a midwife. I'll trust her. And all his coworkers asked, you know, what's up. And he told them and they all said, Oh, Oh my gosh, get home right now. Like, don't listen to her, get home. And he came and he could see, I was uncomfortable with contractions. And he was like, we got to (laughs) go. This is crazy. We got to go. So we went in and I think we got there around noon and my son was born via cesarean at 238 um, PM that day. Yeah. So, and, but same thing when I got there, they put me on the monitor, you know, to watch his heart rate and watch contractions and, you know, they contractions always read differently on people. It doesn't mean people feel them. I always tell people, don't look at the contraction monitor, look at your patient, look at mom, you know, what is she, how does she look during contractions? Because you can see a lot of contractions via the external monitor and mom might not feel them at all, or you can have a woman writhing in discomfort and the contractions aren't picking up well. But they, the physician and the midwife who were on came in to see me and looked at the monitor and said, are you feeling these? And I, again, I didn't want them to rush. I didn't want them to feel panicked. I just like gritted my teeth and I was like, no, not really. And they walked out of the room and I was like, oh, this is terrible. (laughs) So I just, I did had a busy day. I didn't want to be, I just didn't want them to feel rushed. I wanted them to have lunch. I wanted them to take their time. So um, anyways, it was, it was all very humbling, but we met him a couple hours after getting there. So now that he's, how old is he now? He's he is uh, three, uh, three and a quarter. He was 2018. So he turned three in June of this year. So now when you look back, do you think it was just uh you weren't in the mind space or like you were committed to the date in your head or like, what do you think was going on there? Yeah, I think I just thought, you know, my, ever since I became a midwife, I've envisioned my, my perfect, you know, haha, vaginal delivery, my perfect vaginal birth. And so I thought all I had to give up was that vaginal birth. Like, okay, I'm dealing well with the, this scheduled cesarean. That's my birth hiccup, right? That's, that's where I have to give up control. And so when this happened, my water broke well before the, the scheduled cesarean, I thought, no, no, no. No, no, I've already given something up. I, I, yeah, that date was it. I wanted a little bit more maternity leave. You know, I just stopped working. I'm not ready. You know, I, I didn't have, we didn't have dog care arranged for my dog. You know, my husband was supposed to go up to Oregon to sell a house he owned up there like the next couple of days. It was just the timing wasn't right, which yeah. is so ridiculous because I tell people all the time, you know, sort of, sort of like with when you're trying to achieve pregnancy, it could take, one month, it could take up to 12 if you're under 35. Well, it could, you know, your water can break, your labor can start anytime, ideally after 37 weeks and until 42 weeks, like that's all full term. It's a huge window. And I know that. And yet I wasn't ready. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it is, it is a lot to give up, right? There is a, yes. you know, while you're pregnant, there is kind of a daily pull, push and pull in that you're feeling new things. You don't feel well. Is this something? Yeah. Is it nothing? You're in this kind of constant fluxy space for nine months it almost seems like too much to ask to say, and guess what? <laughs> you could absolutely. It's, it's so wild. And I think I, 
you know, I had, I still had no idea what it was like to take a baby home, but I had an idea. I knew my life was going to change in an instant that day forever. And I just didn't feel ready for it. Not that you're ever ready, but I, you know, the curtains weren't hung and, you know, like all these silly things that I was like, no, I was supposed to get that all done. I just didn't feel ready. I thought, you know, six more days would make me more ready, which is hilarious, but I just wasn't ready that day. So what was postpartum like since it arrived early at your doorstep? Yeah. Again, I think my expectations for the C-section were really low thinking I'm going to be in a lot of discomfort. So again, I was really pleasantly surprised. Was it uncomfortable? Yes. Was it awful? No. Um, I was lucky that I, you know, didn't labor. I have a lot of empathy for women who do go through like all of labor and then push for a long time and then have a cesarean. I feel like that is you know, I can't imagine that would be like the recovery of both essentially, or like yeah. women who have twins and one is born vaginally and one's born via cesarean. I really can't imagine, but it was fairly easy. I, I was really lucky with breastfeeding. My son latched in the operating room, um, which was really great. We do skin to skin in the operating room at my hospital. We got to watch him come out. Like they dropped this, you know, dropped a solid drape and there was a clear drape. So I could watch him come out. We didn't know if he was a boy or a girl. So his dad could announce what we had. It was great. Wow. Again, my expectations were really low. So I thought the newborn phase is going to be terrible. And I, kind of loved it. But I think, again, I can't preach this enough that my expectations were low. And was it hard? Did Are you sleep deprived? Do your nipples feel like they're going to fall off? You know, yes, yes, and yes. But it was so much better than I expected. That's awesome. Well, good. Yeah, I'm, glad, so I'm great. glad that was a smooth story. And I kind of, since I know that you were a surrogate, I kind of imagined that it would be pretty smooth because you don't really... Yes go into that unless you had a relatively easy experience. So yeah. why don't you tell us about the, how did you walk into the surrogacy and you know, what had that always been your plan or, yeah, or tell us no, that story? It's, you know, I'm not a religious person, but I do think there are people up there looking down on us and intervening in, in, in ways and, and uh, at times that they need to. So I actually had wanted to be a surrogate in my early twenties before I met my son's father, before I ever considered children of my own and, and quickly found out, as you just mentioned, that really no agency will take on a surrogate who hasn't been through birth herself. You know, you need to prove that you can have a healthy full-term pregnancy without major complications and, and a healthy birth. So I kind of gave it up and thought, oh, okay, I won't, I won't be a surrogate probably. So I actually did egg donation in my early twenties. And there are at least two girls out there now that are half biologically mine that are, you know, 10 plus it's anonymous on my end. So I can't ever ask details about them, but I, I know that at least two baby girls were born. I've just always been really fascinated in infertility. And, you know, if people really want to have a baby and I can help them do that, you know, I would like to. So Anyways, I thought, well, surrogacy won't happen. You know, I, I met my son's father, had him. And then actually my husband and I decided to separate at the beginning of the pandemic. And it was very amicable. We just, we have two jobs that lead us in totally opposite directions time-wise. And we always joke that we would be two single parents. In reality, we were because we're ships passing in the night and it, it just got to be too much. And we just weren't good at being married. So it was literally one day we decided or... I mentally decided like, okay, I think we need to call it like on a Friday. I still remember it was a Friday in, in May of 2020. And I have a colleague who I didn't know that well, but I knew that she was, she and her husband were looking for a surrogate and she couldn't carry for a variety of reasons. And we thought she'd found one through an agency uh, in Southern California. We live in Northern California 
and, you know, hadn't heard anything in several months, but I knew it could take a long time. So um, I decided on Friday that I thought my husband and I should probably, you know, decide to officially separate and divorce. And the next day at work, she and I worked together and midwives, we rarely work together. You know, we're usually passing off to each other. So it was even rare that we were on the floor together at the hospital. And she asked me how I was doing. And I said, you know, I think I've decided to end my marriage. And she looked at me eyes wide and I said, no, no, it feels good to say it out loud. We've been working really hard. It's just, it's not working for us. And so I think we need to change something up. And I said, how are you? And she burst into tears and said, our surrogate fell through the one in Southern California. I just don't think this is ever going to happen. And I looked at her in that moment and I said, I'll be your surrogate. And she, you know, rightfully so looked at me and said, you're crazy. (laughs) You just told me you're ending your marriage. And I said, no, no, I know, but I've actually wanted to be a surrogate for 15 years. You know, this is not something, this is not me offering to pick up a shift for you, right? Like I do know that, that this is a lot. And I know that I don't know just how much it is, but this has been on my radar for a, a big portion of my life before I became a midwife. And So I could see that she kind of thought, okay, well, maybe, but still didn't believe me, rightfully so. So I just said, well, tell me what I got to do. You know, what medical records do I need? Where do I need to send them? So we got the ball rolling and finally enough and bless my child's father, the following, when we finally decided, like got together in person and decided that week that yes, you know, divorce was the best option for us. I looked at him and I said, okay, now I need you to pretend like we're happily married so that I can, we can pass psychological screening so I can be a surrogate. And he just sort of shook his head and laughed and was like, yep, sounds about right. Like didn't skip a beat because he also knew this is something I've always wanted to do. And I'm so grateful to him because we knew a psychologist would never sign off on someone actively going through divorce to be a surrogate. And that's one of the first steps is psychological screening. And he and I sat together on a zoom call, you know, happy couple. And that was May of 2020. And then went through, it takes a long time just to get all of the screenings done, you know, past the psychological screening, the health screening. And so the transfer was not for another five months was in October of 2020. It just takes that long to get everything done to lead up to that point. And then you're not donating an egg or anything. You're just a surrogate. Correct. They already had embryos. They had three healthy embryos. And so there was lots of discussion, you know, their plan was just to just implant one, which I was very happy about was to, yeah. to put in a singleton that so they still just had two healthy embryos if needed. So yeah, it, none of it, none of this baby was, is genetically mine. It is their embryo. And how did that process go? How did the implantation go and how did the pregnancy go? Yeah. The worst part about all of it was actually just the injecting hormones. I had to give myself, you know, intramuscular shots every night. When you're doing a frozen embryo, you have to do those shots for much longer. A lot of people, if they're doing IVF themselves, so they're implanting their own embryo, it's usually what they call a fresh transfer. So they don't have to do the the hormones as long, but I had to do them for like through, I think 12 weeks of pregnancy. And so your, your sides and your, your butt gets so sore, but you know, that's really all I have to complain about. The transfer was easier than like cervical cancer screening or what we used to call a pap smear. It was so easy. You know, they put a speculum in, they look at your cervix, they put a little thin, thin, thin tube through your cervix and it's done. It's, it's almost comically fast. And the, the intended mom, uh, my colleague got to be there for that, which we weren't expecting with the pandemic. So it was really awesome that, that she got to be there for more of it than we anticipated. So it's interesting to me that they give you all those shots because I feel like the IVF protocol is usually for people who have infertility problems, which you clearly don't mm-hmm. have. So mm-hmm. it seems like you have the chemistry to carry out a pregnancy. Why would you need 
Why would you need all this other yeah, stuff? Yeah, that's that's a great question. It's because, you know, there's so much as you are um, in the early phases of pregnancy. So when they implant the implant, the embryo, I forget how far, you know, how many days old that, that embryo is, but my body, you know, if you were going through a natural pregnancy, there's so many hormonal shifts that your body's already doing. Once it knows the sperm has met the egg that my body had not done. So you're really, and and they want to increase the odds of the successful viable pregnancy. So they're basically boosting your uterine lining, making it really nice and fluffy for an embryo to implant. So lots of things that would have already happened my body naturally, um, had it known I was a few days pregnant plus some, you know, to just really increase the odds that, that it was going to be a successful pregnancy because, you know, with, with say an early miscarriage, which so many women, you know, suffer, it can be that their, their uterine lining wasn't fluffy enough or their hormones were a little bit off. They didn't have high enough progesterone, which is a pro pregnancy hormone. So that's really what you're taking is so that your body is the, the best and most ready vessel it can be for this embryo. That, that makes perfect sense. That's true that you're, yeah. you, you're a little bit skipping the line by, by implanting. An embryo, yeah. right? so, That's a but, perfect way to put it. Exactly. So you're, you're trying to sort of compensate for that skipping the line. Yeah. So how was that pregnancy? It was great. Again, you know, it was a little bit more uncomfortable. I, again, was really dedicated to staying really active because I was hoping for a VBAC or a vaginal birth after cesarean. And that was something my, my colleague and her husband were totally on board with, thankfully. I mean, if they'd felt more comfortable with a scheduled cesarean, I still would have done it. But I thought, well, you know, let's see if my body can do this. If I can do this, because since I had labored fairly quickly after my water broke with my son, I thought, I think I'm a really good candidate for a VBAC pending this baby is not breech and, and pending, you know, other, other factors that can lead to a scheduled cesarean. So I even more so was super dedicated to staying really active. You know, your uterus is a muscle and though there's no research, I kind of think if you have a healthy toned body and toned other muscles, I always think maybe your uterus will be more toned, you know, and, and that'll, it'll operate, you know, more efficiently in labor. So I stayed really active and was really lucky again and, and felt great. I really, you know, I'm one of those annoying women that, that really does enjoy being pregnant. That's awesome. That's well, and like you're the perfect person for surrogacy. So that's awesome too. Yes. So take us to the day of the birth. How did that all happen? Yeah. So again, all of these things that I discourage my patients from doing in in both birth stories, but. um... Okay. This part got momentarily crunched up by a bad internet connection, but basically what Anne said was that she and her partner both have jobs with unforgiving hours without much flexibility. Our childcare setup is kind of piecemeal, you know, and we just, it's, it's veiled care needs outside of myself and my husband and mother who gets very kind of lays her out, lays her up and is very time specific. We actually decided to schedule an elective induction, which I am so against an induction just to be induced, but it sounds so silly, but it, the timing was kind of perfect if we did it during this very specific window. And there are actually calculators that you can do to show what your odds of a successful VBAC are based on how far along you are in the pregnancy, how old you are, how much you weigh for your height. And so we knew that if I gave birth before 40 weeks, my odds of a VBAC were a little bit higher. So we kind of put it all together and we knew we were like, we're being the worst midwives that we're thinking we can control this, but 
let's try it. And, but we both agreed that if the early phase of the induction, if I, my body wasn't doing anything, we were both on board that we would stop it and wait for spontaneous labor just because she really wanted to support me with having a vaginal birth, both, both for having it. And also knowing that as a single mom too, you know, the recovery of a cesarean was a little bit daunting. And so I was really hoping, you know, to have a vaginal birth. So we were in agreement that if things were not progressing, that we wouldn't do it but they did. <laughs> we got really lucky. So you went in for an induction and, and you had a vaginal birth. Yeah. So with a cesarean, there are certain medications you can't use with an induction. So you're really, the, you know, the early phase of an induction, if anyone's had one or looking at one um, in terms of knowing they're going to have one coming up or considering one or being told they might need to, to undergo one, uh, the cervical ripening phase is what takes the longest. You know, it's not actually the painful contractions that are causing dilation that takes a while. It's getting your cervix ready to open, getting it nice and soft and thin so that it can dilate later on. And when you haven't had a previous uterine surgery, whether it's cesarean or another type of uterine surgery, you can take an oral medication that, that helps your body kind of cramp and do that. You know, that's how most women experience early spontaneous labor. But when you have had a uterine surgery, you're limited to a mechanical method called a cook balloon or Pitocin through the IV if your body's ready for Pitocin. And my body was not. My cervix was definitely not ready for this induction, but you can put in this mechanical tube, a, a catheter called a cook balloon, and you inflate one little balloon by the baby's head and one balloon on the other side of the cervix. And for 12 hours, that stays in place to put constant pressure on the cervix to help it thin out, soften and do early dilation. And so again, with timing this induction, we chose the midwife who is supremely skilled at placing these cook balloons and God bless her. It was the hardest cook balloon she's ever done. My body was so not ready. She was sweating. We were putting her hair up, you know, like she in a ponytail. It was the end of a busy shift. She just, she stuck with it and kept asking me, can I stick with it? Cause it was very uncomfortable. And I used nitrous oxide, which was awesome. We have that at our hospital, which is laughing gas. They use it very prominently in Europe, but not as much here in the States. And usually cook balloon placement, I don't know, three to five minutes. And mine took like 45 to 50 minutes. Oh my just, wow. Yeah, it was, it was intense. And that was really because my cervix was really tucked way behind the baby's head because my body wasn't ready. And we just had to get me in all these different positions to make it work. And I, I cannot sing the praises of my sister midwife, my midwife colleague enough who stuck with it and, and put it in. So she got it in and the plan that can stand for up to 12 hours. And because it was so difficult, again, the intended mom and I agreed, okay, if this comes out in the morning and the next step is Pitocin, there's really nothing else to do after the balloon. Cause I don't have the option of that oral medication to, to keep the early phase going. I said, if, if my cervix isn't ready uh, for Pitocin, we're, we're going to take the balloon out and we're going to go home. But when they put that in, I started cramping a lot overnight. And so I, I was hoping to get some sleep overnight, but I was cramping really uncomfortably throughout the night. And I was excited by that, Thought, okay, this is triggering something, you know, this is, this is a good sign. And the intended mom was in the room with me. She slept with me in case anything happened overnight. We needed to meet him, you know, urgently via cesarean or something. And I was so nervous about her getting sleep, knowing that she was the one heading into the sleepless newborn days that I would just like bury my face in the pillow and like try to moan as quietly as possible so that she could sleep. I really didn't want her to know how uncomfortable I was. 
And I would like occasionally get up and walk the halls. And I was just trying to be so quiet to let her sleep. So the balloon came out in the morning and it had done perfect work. And, you know, the cramping and combination, my body was totally ready. And we were so excited that, okay, let's, you know, let's do this. So the balloon came out at seven or seven 30 in the morning on the 14th. And they started me on Pitocin. And the next step, knowing my birth history with my son, how quickly I started, you know, strongly laboring after my water broke was to break my water at some point. So the balloon came out. I was actually pretty comfortable. They started me on Pitocin. I, you know, we had some breakfast and then I just, it's so funny. I tell people to write down their birth stories and I've already forgotten the details. I'll have to go back and look. I think they broke my water around 1030 AM. And the next contraction was a doozy. And I remember my eyes just getting wide and like, oh, okay, I remember this. You know, it got it got really intense really quickly. And I I was thinking I was, I had gone into it thinking I will probably get an epidural because I really wanted to be present for the birth, you know, and not to say if you don't have an epidural, you can't be present, but having attended many, many births by now, there's this look of a, and if you look at birth photos, you know, on any blog or social media, there's this most unmedicated women, you know, their, their heads are back in the pillow. There's a baby and they're just kind of, you can tell they're just so relieved that it's done physically so focused that it's, I think that the, a lot of women report, they don't really remember the baby necessarily coming out because they were, you know, so immersed in, in the labor. So I knew I really wanted to be very present for that. And I, I also didn't want my, my friend to be worried about me, like focused. I didn't want her to be worried, focused on my discomfort. I didn't want her to midwife me. I wanted her to just be a mom in the room and focused on that baby coming out. And if I was in the throes of unmedicated labor, you know, I knew that she would be more focused on me and I didn't want that for her or her husband. All of that being said, now that I've experienced it, and regardless of, of wanting to be present for that moment, when contractions started pretty quickly, I was like, oh yeah, I'm going to get that epidural. <laughs> so, so I did use laughing gas for quite a while, but it was so interesting. The contractions felt so much different than I thought they would. So all of that now I talk to women a lot more like what did contractions feel like for you? Because everyone I think feels them differently. My whole rim of my pelvis felt like it was going to explode. You know, it was just, it was so I didn't feel it in my abdomen. I felt it like in my bones. It was just wild. I, I, I was just so thrown by it. And one of my best friends who's a labor and delivery nurse, our sons are three weeks apart. She was my primary labor support and, you know, just put her hands exactly where I needed them. And the intended mom just said all the right things. Like we just had this seamless birth team. It was, it was beautiful. And so my water broke, I think around 1030. I'm so I'm so appalled. I don't remember the time, but I labored for a few hours. And then I think I got the epidural around maybe 2 PM and it didn't work for about an hour. And so now to another level of empathy for patients, when you're just kind of can't really move in the way that was working for you, but you're still feeling pain. It it was so intense. And, and I remember the look on the intended mom's face. She just felt so horrible, you know, like it was her fault or something. And of course it wasn't. I just, I was trying to sort of grin and bear and be like, I'm fine. I'm fine. But of course she could tell I was in a lot of discomfort. And I think for a lot of people, they might say the same thing that once you decide to get the epidural, you probably actually wanted it like an hour before. (laughs) So it feels so long until you've got that relief. But anyways, finally got the relief. I did have the midwife who was on was busy. And so I had my nurse see how far dilated I was. And I was nine and a half, like as soon as, um, so I had, I had labored quite quickly. 
And so our plan was I was going to get a nap because I had, you know, unexpectedly been up all night and I was going to send the parents out to get a breather, you know, and, and, you know, knowing they were going to meet their baby soon. And my friend said, Oh, you know, you can start pushing even we're not here. And I texted her and I said, no, 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 we're not pushing for long. (laughs) Like we're not going to do this forever. We're getting this baby out. So we started pushing at five o'clock and he was born into his mom's hands at five 45. Oh my God. That's um, awesome. They don't realize oh, they have a muscular uterus. Oh yes. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. That's why I right? I want to say that I was like, do you remember how hard I've been training for this? Yeah. We are not doing this for long. And again, so much empathy for women who do push for hours and hours and hours because I knew it would require everything in my body, but again, until you're in it, you just have no idea how much effort it is to push a baby out. And I used the mirror because I was unfortunately very, very numb with the epidural. So I didn't have that, that rectal pressure that a lot of women experience, which I know is uncomfortable, but I was kind of looking forward to that to help guide me. So without that, I used, I used a mirror and that was a game changer. So I know if, if women are offered that it can be, you know, it can be unnerving to see your reproductive system for lack of a better phrase or, and your vagina totally on display, but it's so different when you're folk, you're focused on that head, right? You're not just looking at, Oh, how swollen are my labia or how, how bad are my hemorrhoids? It's, it's so, so motivating. So something to consider if women are offered that by their nurse or their provider, a mirror can really, I think, help motivate you in, in guiding your forces, especially if you don't have a lot of sensation of where to push. So is, you're using the mirror because you can see the muscles tense and then you know that it's a contraction. I can see the head. No, I could okay. see the head. Like I could see where I was, where I was pushing when I was pushing quote unquote correctly. And when I wasn't, so I could just see his hair and I was like, Oh, okay. That's the spot. That's the spot. And would tell myself like, do that again, do that again, because without that sensation, it is so hard. And I knew that for women who do have very dense epidurals, which is sometimes we'll try to turn them down or get them into other positions so that they can have more spontaneous sensation to push. But without that, you know, I, so I used the mirror and, and didn't ultimately need to feel that pressure because I could see him move. And I would just remember like, okay, that's your spot pushing that spot again. So if you see him move, then you know, you're doing it effectively. Correct. Correct. And, the, and luckily he was nice and low before we started pushing. Apparently when I carry babies, they hang out in my pelvis super, super <laughs> low, which is why my breech son would never turn because he was wedged in my pelvis. And, and luckily he's, this baby started at a low station. So I, I, my body had really helped to get him down to where I could quickly see his head. That's super cool. I've never heard of the mirror before. And I had, oh, no, awesome. I had two C-sections and so I have no kind of experience. Oh, interesting. It. Yeah. Yeah. It's something that a lot of patients are, they're either totally for or totally not for. And I never push it on people, but like if a woman's been pushing for, you know, quite a while, the baby isn't descending. I'm like, let's just try it. And it's crazy how often it can work really, really well Well, Um, because they just get that instantaneous feedback. I would think for everyone who can't feel very well, yeah, some kind of guidance, right? This is totally, totally. And, and I, you know, I think people are just like, Oh, I don't want to see all of that staring right at my own vagina. A brief side note here. I'm editing this conversation after I talked to Anne and listening to it again. I am a little bit surprised that women have a problem with the mirror discomfort. Looking at your own anatomy seems like a learned behavior that is not serving us. So kudos to Anne for helping people with this. Again, I, I tell them, I'm like, it's different. Like you're going to be focused on your baby, not, not your vagina. And, and it can work really well. Most women, even if they didn't think they want it, find it very helpful. 
That is super cool. And so yeah. he's born and then does he do skin to skin with uh, his mother? Yeah. So that was one of the first things that we talked about in psychological screening was, you know, and the, the psychologist that we talked with knew that we were both midwives. And so she said, you know, this baby will not be going skin to skin with you. You won't touch the baby. And I said, oh, I absolutely, I know that. And so there's actually one of the nurses who was in the room filmed the birth without us knowing. And she filmed it from like right behind my shoulder. So you can really just see the intended parents, which, you know, I watch it daily for a good cry because the dad's tearing up. Oh, it's so beautiful. I'm totally, I'm getting, you know, goosebumps just thinking about it. I knew the baby was not going to go to me. And I knew it was, I had such a different perspective on this pregnancy. You know, I really sort of mentally trained, like, this is not your embryo. This is not your fetus. This is not your baby. And so I didn't have that connection that I had with my son. You know, I, I, I knew I wouldn't be inclined to reach down for him. I didn't feel like my baby ever, but he actually had the umbilical cord wrapped around his neck twice, which uh, we didn't expect because he didn't show signs in his heart rate during labor, which is usually how we kind of know an umbilical cord might be getting pinched somewhere. And so because of that, his mom needed to put him on my belly to unwrap the cord. And you see my hands like fly up towards my head because I didn't want her to think I was like, no, 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 he's not supposed to be on me. I was like kind of panicked. And she says like, we're just using you as a landing pad. Like don't worry knew that I, I wasn't having this, like, give me my baby. You know, I, I, yeah. I just wanted to make it very clear that I was aware of, of where he was supposed to be, but he went skin to skin. He had a nice long umbilical cord so we could do delayed umbilical cord clamping, but he could go skin to skin with his mom. And, um, oh, it was magic. It was totally magic. That's so amazing. I'm the opposite of you in terms of birth and, and delivery and all that. Literally everything, yeah. everything was hard or didn't go right or whatever. And so um, I look at, but I, but I look at people who are willing to be surrogates and I think, I, I don't even think you can imagine what you're giving to someone else. Yeah. Like yeah. And it was so enormous. It, it, and I, I think because it's always been on my radar, I kind of felt selfish. Like I get to do this. You know, I really, <laughs> if anyone else did it, I would be, you know, I was crazy. And everyone looks at me, the looks I've gotten, they're like, oh, okay. But you know, I, one of the things when my husband and I decided to separate, I'm an age where I don't think I'll probably have more children of my own. And I was sad not to be pregnant again. I was sad not to try for a VBAC and experience labor. And so, you know, selfishly, I was like, I get to do this. Like, yes, I know. I do know I'm giving this family, this, this couple, a huge gift, but I felt like I really, you know, I went out too, because I got to experience something that I thought I would not get to again. Yeah. Uh, the whole thing is amazing. And I just, I, you know, we, in our case, we had doctors who saved our child's life. And I think, yeah, I think daily for sure. You've no idea how you've changed our lives, right? You have, yeah, you've, absolutely. And the same is true for you though, because it's not only have you changed your sister midwife's life and her husband and that baby, but everyone that baby touches, right? Yes. The grandparents. Yeah. And the, and the, right. It's just a million people. No, that's a good point. That's probably where I've been the most touched is, is, they're the, the parents, families or friends reaching out to me and saying like, you have no idea. It's like, oh yeah, you do forget that, that, that ripple effect. Like this little boy is in so many people's lives. And yeah. um, of course it's not just them, but it, that's a great point. Cause that is, that is probably where I was most overwhelmed by, by love is, is the love I received not from them, but from other people around them who, who were so excited as well. Yeah, that's amazing. That's so awesome. Thank you so much for sharing both your story with your son and this surrogate story because they're both amazing. Thank you. I, I feel so lucky and it is as a provider to now having 
has been, you know, I do say we joke that like the induction was good for me as a midwife too, that I've experienced, you know, spontaneous labor and then an induction into a vaginal birth. And so it's really, really ramped up empathy as a provider. You know, I just have this perspective that I would never give up and I'm so grateful for in talking to patients. Thanks so much to Anne for sharing her insights about birth and fertility, sharing her story, not only about her birth, but also about her experience as a surrogate. I'm completely moved by the generosity of people who do this work. And maybe because we had a hard time getting pregnant, have a vague sense of the enormity of the gift that surrogacy is. Thank you for listening. Feel free to like and subscribe to the show. We'll be back soon with another story of overcoming.